All right. Hey, take your Bibles. Go ahead and turn to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus 12 in just a few minutes. Uh, before I kind of follow up with that video, let me uh, say a hello to Andersonville campus, Franklin campus, East Asheville, Arden, uh, etc. But uh, for the first time in uh, 11 months, partly due to uh, a bunch, obviously due to COVID, as well as uh, uh, redoing a uh, bylo over there in a different part of West Asheville, but uh, this and then delayed one week because of the snowstorm. Uh, but if you would just kind of put your hands together and welcome for the first time meeting in 11 months, West Asheville campus, man, very excited. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for your flexibility. Uh, and then in about two weeks, I'm gonna have you do the same thing because in two weeks, uh, all our folks out in Transylvania County and Etowah and Horseshoe and all of that, in two weeks, Lord willing, we are going to be uh, uh, starting the Biltmore Church Brevard campus. And so if you would, uh, and by the way, normally we do RSVP a week out, meaning right now, for next Sunday, uh, biltmorechurch.com slash RSVP, you can do it for any of the any of the services, but for uh, the new ones like Brevard in two weeks, uh, we give you a two-week notice. So if you're in that Transylvania County area, Horseshoe, Etowah, all those folks, uh, you got two weeks and that is open as of eight o'clock this morning. So uh, go ahead and jump on there. Uh, there's two services there. There's two services at West as well. Hey, Arden folks and other campuses will be adding those little by little. Thanks a ton for your flexibility, all right? I, I, the, the crazy emails have gotten less and less and less. So thank you very much for, for, uh, for understanding, wearing masks, all those kind of different things. Not forever, but it is for now. All right, one last thing before we jump into God's word. Uh, following up, we love our partnership with Western Carolina Rescue Ministry. Uh, Michael Woods, I think, is one of the most effective leaders in Western North Carolina. And so we have a lot of confidence in him and how he ministers to people in tremendous need here. And so we asked him, hey, what do you need right now with everything from, you know, the code purple to uh, COVID to all that kind of stuff? And he said, the three things we need that I'm going to ask you as Biltmore Church to provide. The three things we really need right now is we need uh, towels, we need pillows, and we need washcloths. We need new ones, all right? We need new because they've got to throw a bunch of stuff away because of COVID anytime it's used. So they're very short on those three things, all right? Towels, uh, washcloths, and uh, towels, and what did I say? What was the other thing I said? Pillows, just checking, making sure you're on it. All right, so pillows, washcloths, and towels. So over the next few weeks, um, over the, at every campus, there's going to be a display in the lobby that you can either bring that stuff on, on a Sunday or during the week. You can take it by your campus, and we're going to get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those, and we'll be then giving those to uh, Western Carolina Rescue Ministries. You can't help everybody, but you can help someone, all right? So it's not for the person to your right. It's not for the person to your left. It's for you. All right, very few of us in here can't go to Walmart or someplace else and get a couple of brand new pillows or some towels or some washcloths and help somebody out, all right? So uh, I've got confidence in the next few weeks those things will be filled and we'll have to tell you to stop, all right? But washcloths, uh, pillows, and what was the other thing? Thanks, just kidding. Towels, all right. So here's where we are. Um, when you talk about all this, because it kind of goes to what we're talking about today, and we will be doing the Lord's Supper at the uh, end of the service uh, today. The whole service, as you can hopefully tell, is uh, built around just, you know, what does the gospel say? What did Jesus do? And one of the things that we hit all the time is that when we understand the gospel, it changes. When we understand what, who, what God has done and how God has made us, they said, don't grow your beard too long or it'll mess up the mic. And I didn't listen to them. So pray for me that it doesn't do that again. So what we always talk about is this. They said, you know what, if, 
the gospel changes us, if it changes our identity, then it needs to change our activity. In other words, if, if we understand we're forgiven, we're going to forgive other people. If we understand we've been blessed, we want to bless other people. So when it comes to like Western Carolina Rescue Mission, what we don't do is we don't do, hey, I'm going to pay God back by helping somebody else. That's not it. You understand God has already done something for you. And from the overflow of God's love for us, we then love people. All right. So again, over the next few weeks, let's make sure that is done. And uh, even last week, what we saw, what we saw last week is like there was a guy named Moses and until he understood his identity in God, he was making excuses. And once he understood his identity in God, then he ceased to make excuses and he started making a difference. And the difference that he made is God said, I'm gonna use you as a leader. And what we see in today's text in Exodus 12 is kind of the fruit of a man that says, you know what, I'm gonna make not excuses, I'm going to make a difference. And one of the great things I love about this is this shows us once again, that all of these stories is really one story. All the characters, it's really about one character. Everything is really about one thing in this Bible. It's got 40 different authors. You got 66 books. You got 1,500 years of which it was written over. It's over in three different continents. And yet the unity is really telling one unified story that we're going to see today. And it's the most important event in the history of Israel and it points to the most important event in history. The subject matter today is what's called the Passover. It's the very first Passover that, it, as we'll see, it's what Jesus took. He took the Passover meal and he segued it, he transitioned it, he changed it into what you and I call the Lord's Supper. So, all right, so here we go. Let me go uh, Exodus chapter 12, and I'm gonna read verse 21, spend a few minutes giving you context. And then we're gonna jump through the story and I'm gonna give you a couple of principles and then we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper. Here's where it goes. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, your families, and kill, here's our term, the Passover lamb. So he says then, then means, okay, there's some context. Let me give you a five minute uh, spark note version on what's going on. The scene that you're gonna see in Exodus 12 is in Egypt. All right, and so uh, God had promised, you know what? I'm gonna take my people to the promised land. The promise, problem with that is the people had been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. Well, it's time for God to spring his people into freedom and the way he's gonna do that, he's gonna take Moses and Moses is gonna go to the leader of Egypt and say, what's he gonna say? Come on now, y'all seen Christian Bale or Charlton Heston, what does he say? Let my people go. Actually he says, let my people go so that they can go serve me and worship me. That's what he says. And so uh, this is the whole story. The backdrop is they go and they say, he says, hey, let my people go. And because Pharaoh doesn't do it, he sends the 10 plagues. And man, are they not crazy? I mean, they are crazy. You got frogs, all right? You got water turning to blood. You got gnats, all right? And people are like, that's so Hollywood. That's so kind of random. It's actually not random. We won't kind of go down that rabbit trail today, but if you look at those different plagues that he sent, they correspond to the different Egyptian idols that they worship. It's like, oh, you think your God's like this? Well, here's what God's going to do. It's kind of like, like the WWE of the Old Testament, all right? And, and, and the 10 plagues, it's God smacking down all the idols, all the different little gods that the Egyptians worshiped. And a couple things, if you're in your reading plan, here's what you probably noticed that you're like, hey, I don't understand these two things. Real quickly. Number one, uh, what you see is uh, sometimes 
what will happen is Moses will say, I'm going to send a plague if you don't let my people go. And he's like, I'm not going to do it. And then like the frogs come and he's like, oh, I changed my mind. You take care of the frogs and I'll let them go. And so God takes care of the frogs. And then Pharaoh goes, hey, JK, I'm just kidding. Okay. Not going to let them happen. And he does that a couple times. He's like, I changed my mind. And you're like, man, who would do that? Who would do that to God? Oh, we would. How many times have we said, God, if you just do this, I will do this. God, if you will just restore my marriage, I will always be faithful. God, if you will just help me with my business to not go broke, then I will always be faithful with my money. God, if you'll just bring my prodigal home, then I'll do this. We do. We do that same thing. We cry out when the circumstances are dire and then the circumstances change and we're not as desperate. And then we're like, hey, I'm just, just, just kidding. Just kidding on those things. A second thing that some people kind of get like, hey, what is up with that? Is in the text of 7 to 12, chapter 7 to 12, sometimes it says something like this, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then other times it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. You are like, which one is it? Is it God hardening his heart or is it Pharaoh hardening his own heart? Which one is it? Which one is it? And the answer to that, not to be, not to be a cop out, but it's, it's yes. The answer to that is yes. Is there some mystery there? There is some mystery there. Romans 9 gives us a little macro picture of it, but the bottom line is what it does is it it ought to let you take a big, deep sigh of relief. Because what that says is, what it says is nobody's heart is changing until God changes the heart. No matter what your presentation is, no matter how poor it is or how slick it is or how awesome your evangelism technique is, nobody's changing until God changes the heart. And so what you see is the background of that is that, and let's just walk through the text real quick and point out a few things and then give some big overarching principles for the Lord's Supper. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel, said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorpost with the blood that is in the basin. This is what you see in the movie, by the way. You know, you see, it's like, hey, let's put it over the doorpost. I got actually an interesting story. They actually um, weren't gonna include that in the uh, Prince of Egypt. They actually were like, hey, uh, you know, we, they brought a bunch of theologians in to see the initial cut of the movie. And hey, what do you think? What do we miss? And, and one of them goes, you took, you edit out the whole part about, listen, I will pass over you if you put the blood on the doorpost. It's like, how do you take that out? That's the point of the whole story. And to their credit, by the way, they put it back in. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over, which is the whole idea of the Passover lamb. He will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. In other words, what they started doing, this actually marked like the beginning of the, the new month and it's like this is, or the new year. This is how we do it. We're going we're gonna to take this. And this has been done for thousands of years. And so it's like, do this, do this. Do, why should we do this? And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. But why? Because when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. Hey, mom and dad, by the way, what this is called, this is called discipleship. This is you discipling little junior, even though you don't know everything. This is today's 
time. This is you taking out that Jesus storybook Bible that so many of you got, that Jesus storybook Bible, and just reading the story, and it's like, here's what God said, and here's what God did. That's what this is. When he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped, and then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So, all right, here we are. This, this is the 10th plague. The 10th plague is called uh, the plague of the firstborn. And the plague of the firstborn is like Moses goes up to Pharaoh and it's like, listen, nine of these hadn't worked and it's about to get real. And what's gonna happen is if you don't let the people go, God is gonna come in and wipe out all of the firstborn. All of the firstborn, not just the people, but the animals as well. And I know this is very strange to our ears in our modern time. It's like, well, how barbaric would that be? Just wait till we get to Joshua. Then we're going, we'll, we'll see some stuff then. But the firstborn of that culture was the prized possession. It was what the whole family dynamic and future rested upon. But understand, this also applied to the Israelites. If the Israelites had not, by faith, taken the blood of the lamb and put it over their doorposts, there's no indication that God would have spared them. He's like, there's a penalty for the sin for everybody, the religious and the irreligious. Now, what they would do is uh, they would take the little lamb and they would bring it into their home for some period of time. In the succeeding years, they would take the little, they would take the lamb and it's like, hey, go pick out a spotless one and they bring it into their home for like 14 days to make it like a pet. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I mean, we got some pet lovers in here, but can you imagine? You bring it into your home for 14 days. You say, hey, I don't, even know what, what's the, I don't even know what a good lamb name is. Uh, Skippy, all right, <laughs> Skippy, Skippy the lamb, all right, Skippy the lamb, you bring Skippy in, Skippy's in there, 14 days, little Jimmy, little Jimmy's over there, it's like, oh, I love Skippy, Skippy sleeps with Jimmy, they go out and play together, and then at a bright time, he's like, dad's like, hey, Jimmy, take Skippy, we gotta go, what are we gonna do? Jimmy, I gotta, I'm gonna have to slay, I'm gonna have to kill, I'm gonna have to kill little Skippy. And Jimmy's like, Dad, that's not fair. That's not fair. I love little Skippy. Skippy and I've been playing together. Skippy's my friend. And at some point, Dad had to look at Jimmy and go, Jimmy, it's either the lamb or it's you. I don't know what Jimmy did at that point. Jimmy probably was like, hey, come here, little Skippy. Come here, little Skippy. This is, come on, let's, let's take care of this. And... Um, the message, though, of the Passover is real clear. The message of the Passover is that God is, is, is on, he is holy, he's also merciful. There is severity, there's also great tenderness. And he begins to introduce, just, he, he really introduced it in Genesis 3, but he begins to introduce to his people the whole idea of an alternative payment, of the whole idea of a substitution. The idea is this, that the firstborn doesn't die, and the only reason the firstborn doesn't die is if the lamb is in the place of the firstborn. God spares the Israel's sons, not because they're better than the Egyptian sons, but simply because they took the blood of a lamb and in the place of the firstborn dies in their place. Now I know right off the bat, in our modern ears, we're like, why didn't God just forgive the sin? Why didn't he just forgive the sin? There's so many reasons for this, but just a quick flyby of this. You understand even on our most shallow levels, a sin is always somebody's gonna pay for any kind of sin. 
If you say, can I borrow your truck? I gotta go move some logs or whatever. And I'm like, hey, here's, sure, go borrow my truck. And you wreck my truck. One of two things is gonna happen. Either number one, you are gonna pay for it, which actually, that is exactly what would happen, okay? Either one, you would pay for it. Or number two, I would say, no big deal. I'll take care of it. But even if I say I'm gonna take care of it, by saying I'm gonna take care of it, I am still going to have to pay for it. I'm either gonna pay a higher deductible or I'm gonna have to pay for the repair. Either way, somebody's paying for it. I mean, take it even worse. Let's say you slander me. You say a bunch of bad stuff, a bunch of stuff online. I can say either one of two, either one of two things. Either I can start saying bad stuff about you kind of to get a sense of justice. It's like, well, this is kind of chipping away at all the junk you've said. Or I can forgive you. But in forgiving you, I still am absorbing and taking into myself, you know what? By forgiving you, somebody's still paying for that sin. Now, here's the part that I really want to teach you the Bible this way, to think about the Bible this way, okay? The entire book is pointing, and this is like one of those major signposts. From Genesis chapter 3, when he says, I will send somebody who will crush your enemy's head, to Jesus taking the Passover supper and turning it into the Lord's Supper, to the book of Leviticus, which some of you all on that reading plan, you're going to get to that book of Leviticus here pretty soon, and you're like going to wilt like a just a, on a vine unless you understand the whole book of Leviticus. It's not about rules and diet and all that stuff. If you really look at it, the whole thing of Leviticus is an equation. This sin costs this much. If you do this sin, it's going to cost a turtle dove. If you do this sin, it's going to cost a goat. You do that sin, it's going to cost a lamb. In other words, the whole thing is this is going to cost. Sin is costly. And the whole sacrificial system, all that Old Testament stuff that we've talked about before, all of that stuff, while good, it's kind of like taking a shower. I mean, it cleans you for a little bit of time, but you got to do it over and over and over again. I mean, it feels good, but you have to repeat it all the time, and that's what happened. And so throughout the book, when you read it as one story, there's all these signposts. Like if you're going on a trip and you go to, let's say, you know, a vacation Mecca, like Wichita Falls, Texas, all right? If you're going to Wichita Falls, Texas, you go, uh, you might see a signpost. It's like Wichita Falls, Texas, 400 miles, 400 miles. Then you get a little closer, 200 miles, 100 miles, 50 miles. Those are like signposts saying you're going in the right direction. You're not there yet, but you're in the right direction. And that's what the Bible does all the way through, all the way through. It's like giving signposts. Some of them are crystal clear. Like Psalm 22. Psalm 22, I don't know if you Jesus actually quotes some of Psalm 22 while he's hanging on the cross. Psalm 22 verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus wasn't just making that up. He was actually quoting it from Psalm 22. But back when they read Psalm 22, the only thing they were getting was like, man, this doesn't sound like a sheep. This doesn't sound like a goat. This sounds like a person. And then you get to like places like Isaiah 53 when he says it was the will of the Lord to lay the iniquity of us all on him. That doesn't sound like a sacrificial system we're doing. Doesn't sound like that. Or you get to those minor prophets with those hard names. You get a guy like Zechariah and he says, behold, your king is coming to you. Man, somebody's coming. It's going to change this whole thing up. And then you go silent, 400 years. There's one page after Malachi, before Matthew, you got one page. You're like, man, it's just one page. That one page represents 400 years where God didn't say anything. It's like nothing. Silence, 400 years. Somebody coming, there's somebody coming and nothing. And then boom, right at the start of the New Testament, 
right at the start, there's this crazy guy named John the Baptist. I mean, he is crazy. I mean, he's got a crazy diet. He raised fashion is crazy. Some of you are like, man, I didn't know we had Baptists in the Bible. Listen, that's, that's not, I thought that when I was like early on, I was like, man, you got, what do you got? Pete the Presbyterian and Mike the Methodist. You got, you got John the Baptist. That's awesome. It's not that. It's that John had really a simple ministry. It was to preach repentance and baptize people. That's, that was his one sermon, one sermon. I got a sermon file that is like, I don't know, 20 pages after 12 years. John the Baptist had one. He has one sermon all the time. And it's repent, repent. And then as an expression of your repentance, get baptized. Here's the way we, here's a hinge verse. John 1, 29 says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, behold means pay attention. Things are about to change. Get off your phone, get off Facebook. Behold, something's about to happen. And then he says, the lamb of God, not a lamb of God, not one of many, but the lamb of God. And then it says that takes away the sin of the world. Doesn't cover it up. You don't have to take a shower again. You don't have to do a sacrifice again. He is the one that actually takes away the sin of the world. And then when Jesus gets to the Lord's Supper, because Jesus talked about a lot of stuff before the Lord's Supper, I agree. He talked about marriage, so we talk about marriage some in here. He talked about money, we talk about money some. He talked about morals, he talk, we talk about morals some. But bottom line, the reason he came, the reason he came was to be the Passover lamb was to die in our place for our sins on a tree that he himself had stepped out on the front porch of heaven and spoken into being. That's the reason he came. And so he's sitting there with his disciples in the upper room and he's already changing it around. I mean, when they walk in, he's the one that like gets on his knees and starts washing their feet. That's like, that's the lowest person supposed to do that. So he's already flipping around what leadership is all about anyway. And as he does that, there's a couple of things that you were called the, I think you were called the prescriber or presider, the presider over the Lord's Supper back then, the presider. So you had a leader and he would like walk people because they had all these elements in the, you had all these elements in the Passover meal. I mean, you had these four cups of wine that represented different things, but you also had, obviously had bread, you had bread and the bread was actually, they would say this saying, they would have this saying back in Passover time, Passover, up until this time, remember you got a bunch of Jewish guys sitting around a table. They're expecting Jesus to do just what they've done for thousands and thousands of years. And what they would do when they took the bread out, here's what they would say for thousands of years. This is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. So Jesus takes that bread. They're expecting him to say, this is the bread of our fathers that represents the afflictions that they had in the wilderness. That's what they're expecting. That's not what he said. He takes that bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Listen, this is the night before. Just like, just like God gave a Passover lamb and then he delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians in the same way the night before. He says, listen, it's not, here's a little Bible trivia. None of the gospels, I'm not saying it wasn't there so you can't be dogmatic about it. None of the gospels, because they talk about the wine, they talk about the, the bread, you know what is not mentioned in any of the four gospels about the whole Lord's Supper deal? It's never mentioned about the actual main course, the lamb. The only thing I can think of instead of the lamb on the table, like a normal Passover meal, they are gonna understand at some point the lamb was at the table. The lamb was the one presiding over it. 
And so then he says, this is my blood given for you. Now, did they understand that right then? Probably not nearly as well as they understood it in the following days when they understood, you know what? He's hanging on a cross for me. He's dying for me. So what are a couple of things we can think of? This is gonna be before we do the Lord's Supper. We wanna be able to do it well. Two quick principles. Principle number one, our sin actually is worse than we think. As I said last week, you're like, that's why I come here, to get smacked down about how bad I am. It's really not that. It's really the fact that the gospel goes into bad places. The good news goes into bad news. We just need to understand when we do the Lord's Supper, our sin is worse than we think. I know it's very politically incorrect, but if you take your Bible seriously at all, there is no denying the anger of God at sin. There is no denying the anger of God at sin. Many people, many churches, even many churches in our region, they think that the God of the Old Testament was like cranky God, you know, mean, angry, vengeful, wrathful God. And then you had 400 years for God to cool off and then God came because God 2.0 in the New Testament, he's meek and mild Jesus, all right? He went off to Berkeley and got progressive or whatever and now he's like, he's like super meek and mild. The problem with that is simply what Jesus said in the Bible. Jesus actually speaks, let's say, for example, he speaks of hell more than anybody else. John 3, 36, he put it this way. He said, whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. The Pharisees, they did not, they didn't want to crucify him. They didn't hate Jesus because he said, help people or love people. He did so because he said, you know what? The wrath of God is on you because of your hypocrisy and the way you're leading people astray. And the reason we do, we have kind of a man-centered view of our sin. We say things like, I made a mistake. A mistake is like forgetting to carry the one in a math problem. That's a mistake. Okay, that's a mistake. The Bible never says we're, we're mistakers, all right, in need of a teacher. It says we're sinners in need of a savior. And usually it's because we can find some neighbor, maybe even somebody sitting next to you right now that's worse off than you. You're like, dude, I saw you at the club last night, so you, you ought to be in church today. But really the, 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 the egregiousness of the sin is who's it's against. I mean, if you go and uh, kick a wall, put a hole in it, you probably have to pay for the hole in the wall. If you kick a dog, man, people are like, you, that is bad. My kids are never coming to your house again. You kick a cat, it's really not even a sin, but if you, if you, I'm just kidding, just kidding. All right. But if you go and kick somebody at the grocery store, you go kick some old lady at the grocery store, man, they're taking you to jail because of who you did it against. Think about this. When we rebel against almighty God and say, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing, my own way, forget you, which is really the essence of sin. The fact that it's against an infinite, holy, righteous God is what makes it so, so serious. And all of us have done it. All of us have. The religious and the rebellious. That's why he said the Egyptians have got to do it and the Israelis have got to do it because all have sinned. Now, let me do this. Uh, the, you're like, that's bad news. Here's the good news about that. Is God's grace is greater than we can even dream or imagine. Or another way I heard it this week is God's grace is the oxygen of the Christian life. Of the Christian life. Many of you guys know my mom passed a couple years ago, but I don't know if you knew this, but she went through like a bunch of health issues. I mean, stroke, heart attack, 
but by far the one that, the one that, I guess, impacted her life the most was lung cancer. I mean, you know, for 40 years, you know, they Marlboro 100s pack a day, and so that damaged the lungs. And then she had lung cancer, and they took part of one lung. And so when you do that, you can't breathe very good. You got to get oxygen. And so the littlest thing is a chore. I mean, walking up the stairs, got to wait for a second. I mean, this is like a tough, tough, this toughest lady I've ever known. Can't walk up the stairs without, can't go to the car. I'm just breathing, I'm just breathing. And she couldn't get the oxygen. And I thought, that's the picture of Christians who don't understand the gospel of grace. Everything is a chore. Reading your Bible's a chore. Like, man, I just got to do it today. Singing's a chore. Giving's a chore. Serving's a chore. Why? Because there's no grace involved, so it's all about a duty you've got to do. So here's, I'm going to teach you a word, and we've hit this word a couple times, and I'm going to make you help me with it today. Um, because the word, the word that is the most appropriate to understand the Lord's Supper, to understand the goodness of God as well as the justice of God, to understand the terror of God and also the tenderness of God. The word that is the most, in my mind, the most all-encapsulating is a word that uh, we talked about once or twice, but it's the one that just frees you up once you understand it. And I know that all the church growth experts are like, you shouldn't use tough words in church. Well, that's whatever, all right? If you can pronounce and if you can say or if you can order pistachio macchiato, okay, then you can say the word propitiation, Okay, you can say propitiation. As a matter of fact, let's just work on it. I'm not gonna have you say it to your neighbor. You know, it's not gonna have you say it to your neighbor. It's COVID, I don't want you spitting on anybody, but because there's a lot of in there. But at the count of three, just say the word propitiation, all right? One, two, three. Propitiation. So you're, you feel smart. It just feels smart right off the bat. What propitiation means is a payment that satisfies. It means when Jesus died on the cross, God accepted that payment, that perfect payment. That's why I always talk about he lived a sinless life and then died a substitutionary death. And the Bible talks about propitiation a bunch. The word actually used for mercy seat in the Old Testament. Paul talks about it. You talk, some people are like, what's your favorite passage of scripture? And it varies season to season. Right now, I'm trying to memorize most of Romans 3. In Romans 3, verse 24 and 25, it says this, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, and listen, here's the part, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Paul talks about it. The writer of Hebrews, who we don't know, he talks about it in the verb form. It's like he propitiated for his sons and daughters. The love apostle, John, he talks about it. First John, probably the best, first John 4.10, it says, and this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. Now, how do you land the plane on this? What you gotta land the plane on, this is not some theological term that stays there, it means this, is if you are in Christ, I'm not saying you are or aren't. I'm saying if you are in Christ, if you have taken the blood of Christ and you have applied it to the doorpost of your own life through repentance and faith, if you've taken the blood of Christ, put it on the doorpost of your life saying, you know what? What you did on the cross somehow counted for me and embrace him through repentance and faith, then you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, the Bible says this, 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What that means is uh, when he says, you know what, it is finished, when he pushes up on the cross, it is finished. What he says is all the Levitical system, all the sacrifices, all the Passover, and here's the part you gotta understand, and we've said it before and I'll say it a hundred times. If Jesus is the payment, if Jesus is the payment that satisfies a holy and righteous God, and you are in Christ, then God cannot be dissatisfied with you. If Jesus is the propitiation, if he is the payment that satisfies, he cannot be dissatisfied with you. That he loves you. He doesn't love the future version of you when you get your act together. I mean, when's that gonna happen? How often have we said, next year I'm gonna get my act together. He loves you, not the future version of you. And like, well, yeah, but you don't know my story. You don't know my junk. Here's the way I would put it. I would just say it this way. God got your Carfax. He got your Carfax and he looked at it and he said, yep, she's busted up. Yeah, he's broken up. Yeah, he's a lemon and he still pays full payment for you. That's what he did. That's propitiation. You're like, well, yeah, but I've disappointed him in some areas. And I'm not saying that we don't need to repent as believers. We do need to repent as believers. Not to be saved, but so that God will change us. Not for God to accept us, but because God already does accept us. But when you, technically, you cannot disappoint God. Technically, not the way we use disappointment. To disappoint somebody, you've got to surprise somebody, correct? You've got to surprise somebody. It's like, oh, that disappointed me. I had no idea that would happen. Never in the history of the universe has God ever been up in heaven saying, you know, what in the name of me did she do? Never said that. That shocked me. I didn't see that coming. Didn't say that. God knows you, God loves you. And I know what a couple of you are saying before we change. Some people like they fight against the whole, anytime you talk about grace, they fight against it. It's like, man, nah, you better lay some law on them or people won't behave. People won't behave. It's actually an argument that's made in the Bible. I'm talking about the Christian life. That's the argument that's made in the book of Romans. And Paul says, what shall, we, what shall we say? Do we continue to sin so we can get more grace? And the closest thing that comes to cussing in the Bible, he says, God forbid, maginatai, may it never be. Don't you know you died to sin? How are you gonna still live in it? The church back in the 17th century, they were worried about that stuff as well. They were putting preachers in jail that preached grace. One of them was a guy named John Bunyan, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Here's what he said. They were arguing about, man, if they don't have the fear of punishment, if they don't have all of that stuff, people will do whatever they want. And here's Bunyan's reply. If people really see that Christ has removed the fear of punishment from them by, by taking it into himself, they won't do whatever they want. They'll do whatever he wants. Man, that's the gospel. So what does that look like? It means, uh, it means that we, ch we change. Uh, you get your identity changed, then your activity changes. He looks at the blind man, or looks at the crippled man who he heals. What does he say? He says, take up your mat and, and walk. He looks at Lazarus. Take off your stinking grave clothes, all right? You stinketh, and you're different now. Go. What's he tell the woman caught in adultery? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Identity, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more activity. So church, what do we do? If we are gospel-centered church and we are trying so hard to root everything we do in the gospel, 
then what that means is it doesn't just mean we sit here and soak up the gospel. It's like, I love hearing about how God loves me and he doesn't love the future version of me. He loves me. That's awesome. And that is awesome. But what we have to understand is that that then translates into our activity. So if we're loved by God, even when we are unlovable, then we love people even when they are unlovable. If God forgives us, then we look at people who have hurt us and we forgive them. If God is generous toward us, then what do we do? We have to be generous toward the communities that we serve. Or what we're saying is, you know what? I don't really, I don't really understand. I don't really understand the gospel. I mean, the story, imagine this story. I'll just close with this one. And we'll go to the Lord's Supper. Imagine this story. Imagine a boy and he gets in the foster care system. And listen, we love the foster care system and we have uh, invested in it and we'll invest in it even more. But imagine it. Infant boy gets taken into the foster care system. He gets placed into a home. Father hurts him. Father abuses him. Boy spends the first five years of his life in that situation. The dad never tells him any words of exhortation, never says, I love you, calls him names, demeans him. One night, the dad comes in drunk, knocks the door down of his bedroom, hits the boy. Boy doesn't have a bed. He's got to sleep in the corner of his room, got no pajamas, his dad barely feeds him, never gets love. He has to ask his friends for food when he's at school. Then one day CPS finds out, they take the child away and he's adopted by a good family with a good dad. Dad starts to speak life into the boy. Says things like, I'm proud of you, I love you. And the boy's never heard these words in his life. He's never experienced this kind of unconditional love. The father cleans him up. He gives him new clothes, gives him a new bed and toys and all the stuff he wants to eat. One day, the dad walks into his kid's bedroom and the little boy's just in the corner of the floor. Father goes, listen, you don't have to sleep on the floor anymore. I love you. One time at the dinner table, he sees his Little boy taking food and putting it into his pocket so he could have some a little bit later. Dad says, you don't have to do that anymore. I'll never, I'll never let you go hungry. This is your new family. Over and over again, this happens. Sometimes when he comes home, the boy hides in the closet. And I thought about that story. And I thought, that's the story of every Christian. And if you came to Christ late, like I did, there was a lot of patterns that were already in place. Sin damages us, so we end up living with a sense of fear and condemnation. And what you and I have to do, and that's in some ways what the Lord's Supper, it's about what God has done for you, therefore go and live that way. You don't live in a sense of shame. You're no longer your sin. You're no longer under condemnation. You're a son or daughter of Almighty God. You've been bought with a price. You're free. You're redeemed. You're all those things. But now he's saying, live this way. Live this way.